At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Truth be told, I am a terrible sleeper. I toss and turn all night long. I've tried every freaking mattress out there from air mattresses to foam mattresses to spring mattresses to air compartment managers. You name it, I've tried it. And I figured out that there's nobody exactly like mine. And there's nobody else on the planet exactly like you. So why do we buy a generic mattress built for everyone else? It makes no sense. So Helix Sleep built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress just for you. This is really cool. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, like plush or firm bed with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com slash taffer, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. For couples, check this out. Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for you and the person you sleep with. And right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash taffer. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash taffer. That's helixsleep.com slash taffer for $125 off your mattress order. Helixsleep.com slash taffer. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. So here we are for another episode of No Excuses. You know, years ago, uh, uh, I did one. Of, I think it was my third hurricane rescue, which was Big Mike's in Baton Rouge. And last night, I wanted to watch uh, the rebroadcast of Operation Puerto Rico. So uh, uh, I wanted to see what was on before it. So I went to DirecTV. I looked at the listing. And KC, son of a gun, uh, my second favorite episode ever which was Big Mike's and Baton Rouge was on. So I watched that too. So I wanted to talk to them and see how they're doing. So we're going to talk to Mike and Jocelyn from Big Mike's. Mike, Jocelyn, hello. Hi. How are you, John? Oh, uh, boy, it's great to hear your voice, Mike and Jocelyn. I love you guys. We haven't spoken since I was there, which is actually amazing to me. But I keep hearing updates. I hear things are going great down there. We are very fortunate. Everything has been great uh, ever since the show. Business is, uh, you know, of course, was just unbelievable. You got us open so fast that we were one of the first places after the flood to open. And uh, we were doing uh, over double what we were doing before, but now we've kind of settled back. 
but we're still doing more than we were doing before the flood. Uh, all the changes, everything has been great. People still talk about the show, and uh, we're just so so very blessed and very fortunate. Uh, thank you. Well, I'm blessed to know you both. So is the family all together now? The house is all straightened out? Is all that behind you? Yes, sir. We actually um, were lucky enough to get everything done, and we moved back home in March. Wow. So so the bar did so well in the beginning before everyone else opened that I'm guessing you made enough money early to be able to uh, get the house and the family together. Is that the way it worked out? It did. We hit the floor running and we did not slow down or stop. It was just, it was incredible. Wow. Wow. What was the experience like for both of you? You know, you, you were so successful. And then this guy, Taffer, who screams and yells and throws things on TV is coming down. What was it like for you? First of all, was it nerve wracking before I got there? Well, we really couldn't uh, believe being, being fans of the show and watching it all the time. When we got the first email and started the process, we really couldn't believe it until y'all basically your feet were on the ground here. Um, it was nervous, you know, knowing that it's a national TV show and knowing that all these people are coming down here to help us and our family and our community. So I guess you could say um, it kind of put some pressure on us, but we really didn't have time. You know, it was just such a fast-moving thing, and we had been through so much that uh, we were just counting our blessings and uh, and everything. But we, um, it, it, as far as the filming and all that stuff, I think we fell into it really well, and your staff and all of your employees from day one were just absolutely unbelievable and great and professional and, and making us feel comfortable and talking us through the process. So that was the huge deal. Your staff made it uh, a really great uh, experience. That's great to hear. I'm so proud of them. You know this, uh, Mike Jossie. They've been with me, most of them, for five, six years. And, uh, you know, we loved you both. Uh, we, we really cared about you. We, we, we saw you both as winners that Mother Nature, you know, cut your legs off, so to speak. So it was emotional for us, and, and it became very personal for us. Bar rescues, Mike, aren't as personal as yours were. You know, when we saw your problem and when we, we sat together outside your house when we first met, I'll never forget that day. And you looked at me as a father and told me that, you know, y- your little girl was staying with somebody else. That was heavy duty for me. That really impacted me. I couldn't imagine going through that as a father, especially after working my butt off all these years to have a beautiful home for your family. So it was personal to me, Mike. It, it really became really powerful. And, and, and the size of your bar was a huge challenge. It was what, almost 10,000 square feet, I think, when we went. Right. Almost 11,000. It's over 10,000. Jeez. Did you like the way you were portrayed in the show? Did you find it all to be honest and forthright? Um, I did. I really, you know, people ask, of course, you know, if, if, if this stage, if that staged, and, and I said, we were never asked, not one time, to try to make anything up. We were never given a script. We were never anything. I mean, we, this was just straight off the hip. Uh, everything was what it was, what it was. And I said, um, so, it, I, you know, I call it reality TV. Um, I, we, we weren't asked to fake anything. Um, and I think it portrayed us uh, fine. We were very, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think I looked a little bigger than I am. I think TV adds 10 pounds to you, but uh, but otherwise I was okay with it. You know, it's funny that you say that, Mike, because... <laughs> 
when I shot my pilot for Bar Rescue, I, I, I was a few pounds overweight. So I go home and I show the cut to my wife, Nicole. And she says to me, uh, 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 you know, you look a little heavy. And I said, well, you know, they say the camera makes you look heavier. And she said to me, well, they must have used three cameras. (laughs) 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 So, so, Jocelyn, what did you think when you watched the episode the first time? Was it emotional for you to watch? It was very, very emotional. Um, I think that y'all did a, a fantastic job just relaying the story and what we've been through, our town, um, you know, our community. Uh, like you said, it was very straightforward, um, you know, and you portray, you, you told the story very well. And it's crazy because every time the show re-airs, we get emails from all over the country just saying, I just saw your episode, wishing you nothing but the best. I cried the entire time. So it was a tearjerker for everyone, even people that don't know us on a personal level. So you know, I think that y'all just, it was a brilliant episode. It really was. Well, because the two of you are so real. And, and it was a wonderful story to tell, uh, and it was an important story for people to hear, especially today when you see what's going on in North and South Carolina. Wow. Yeah, and, I feel and so, you know, what would you say? Because when I saw the two of you, boy, you were low. You were in a tough place. Your house was flooded. You lost your business. You lost your cash flow. Uh, uh, Your family was cut apart. I mean, at that point, at that moment, Mike, uh, I can't imagine that you could have been in in a more difficult spot. What would you say to those victims in North and South Carolina today whose homes are flooded and have the journey ahead of them that you had ahead of you then? What would you say to them to help them get through this? Well, your first initial shock, of course, but then after that, you're just, uh, you know, you're depressed because of not knowing, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing if I have the right insurance, not knowing if I'm going to get the help, not knowing if I'm going to have a paycheck. And it's very hard, and it does. It brings you down. It was, you know, it was such an emotional, emotional, emotional time for us. One thing we did was we leaned on each other, and thank God my wife was strong as she is, and um, <clears throat> we just, I, I think it kind of brought us, a, you know, uh, closer together. So I would say, you know, you definitely have to reach out for family and friends, know that there is help out there, know that there's people uh, around every corner that are willing to give a hand. There's, there's a lot better, there's a lot more good people in this world than there is bad um, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel right now when you've lost everything, um, you know, but there was just little glimmer of hopes. And we had to take it day by day. Um, don't you know if, if, if you don't get back in your house by a certain time, you don't do this by a certain time. Um, but I just don't be afraid to ask for help. The help's there. I know that the Cajun Navy and our police force and everything, they had people that left out of here before the storm even started. People from our town, people from Baton Rouge. Um, but it's a, it is a very emotional roller coaster, but you can definitely overcome it. Josh and I are proof of that. Within a 36-hour period, we lost everything, basically home, vehicles, income. Um, and if we can make it, I know everybody can. Um, you know, of course, your show helped, but it's just, I mean, the churches and all the other groups and everything, there's going to be there people. There will be people there for you. And just hang on and be strong. Don't out on your family. Uh, embrace your family more than you ever had before. Your family and friends, and uh, and you can make it through. 
You know, it was one of your biggest problems when I sat with you is you have been a giver your whole life, Mike. And I'm going to embarrass you, but but uh, I can't help it. You've been giving, and you were one of the people in your community who I was told gave and supported everyone. And you were great at giving, but you weren't good at asking. And I remember when we sat together, and you told me. And remember that conversation we had where I said, you know, life is knowing when to take and when to give. That was really hard for you. The first one ever told me anything like that. That was a really powerful moment because your pride as a man, as a father— as a husband, you don't want to go ask for help. You want to be self-reliant. That's who you are. That's every bone in your body. That was really tough for you, wasn't it? To actually say, I need help. I can't do this alone. Because you've done everything alone your whole life. And it was. It was, uh, I guess you could say, a prideful thing. And, and Jocelyn and I, like I say, we, our CPA tells us every year that we basically give too much. I mean, because we just give and give and give. We, we, we believe in karma. Um, and we've never, you know, not that we've never had to ask for help, but it definitely wasn't something that we've had to do. And um, so it was, it was hard for me, uh, but I knew that it was the best thing for my family. I think it's one of the reasons why it was so emotional uh, for me, I mean, I teared up when you know when you and I and Jocelyn first met that first time, and when you yep. talked to me like that, and it, it, I, I didn't, you know, we give without, a, we don't want a pat on the back, we don't need any of that, and it was really the first time in my life that so many people had come out and said that this guy deserves it, this family deserves this, this, you know, Mike and Jocelyn have done this and that or whatever. I guess it was kind of the first time to really know that people acknowledged us, and like I said in the episode. It was. I really found out that the community needed us just as much as we needed them. Well, you know, this show, when you shared your story with America, I think it was important. I think it was important to see fathers in your situation accepting help. I think it was important that people see winners lick their wounds, stand up on their feet, and go back and fight again. I think your story was important for everyone to see. I also think, especially with the hurricane going on right now and the flooding, it's an important story for America to know. When the cameras disappear, the money disappears. And that's when, you know, you guys are forgotten down there. And, you know, to be able to go down there and make a difference means a lot to me. Did the opening of your business impact the community at all? Was it, did it have a positive impact upon uh, the other businesses or the population? did um just because uh, granted we had the help of, of you and your uh, bar rescue but you know if we could do it, it you know other businesses can do it so and then of course it put us in a position to where we were able to help more and it was just crazy because the town just seemed like a ghost town you know after the flood but then you know here one week two businesses opened the next week three businesses opened um you know, so it just, it brought back life to the town. And two years later, you know, when we're sitting there, you know, twiddling our thumbs thinking, oh my gosh, this is never going to be the same again. You drive down these streets now and it's like it never happened, you know, wow. so there's life again. And uh, and it's just, you know, it's something that we all went through together, but we made it through as a community and we're back bigger and better. Well, Puerto Rico's making it through as a community, and, and, and so are the Carolinas. And I think that's the great part of the story. Guys, you're successful because your community loves you. They love you guys. You know that. TV loved you. They loved both of you. My crew and I, we love you. 
So, so continued success to both of you. So deserve it. You're such good human beings. Uh, uh, Mike, you're as good a guy as I've ever met. Jocelyn, I can't imagine a better wife or a better mom. So continued success to both of you. And it was great to talk again and catch up. Great talking to you, too. Thank you, John. We appreciate it. Uh, take care, buddy. Let's talk soon, okay? I'll keep in touch. And we're taking a quick pause for thanks to our sponsor. Wow, I can't believe I'm already picking my NFL picks for week four. I think it's time for you to take your pigskin knowledge to the bank at BetDSI.com. BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online, and they've built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit to start winning and get up to $2,500 free. That's double your money right from the get-go. So join BetDSI.com today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. That's promo code TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. And once you become a member and have all this sweet bonus money, here's what you should do. You should join the BetDSI 2018 Handicappers Cut. And these are my picks for week four. I'm saying that the Rams are going to take the Vikings by more than seven. I believe the Seahawks are going to take the Cardinals by more than three. I believe the Eagles are going to take the Titans by more than three and a half. I believe the Raiders are going to take the Browns by more than two and a half. And I believe that the Saints are going to take the Giants, unfortunately, by more than three and a half. BetDSI.com slash Taffer 101. Get in the action. Start counting your money. I can't wait to count mine. So many years ago when I started uh, Bar Rescue, look, I wasn't in the entertainment business. I was a nightclub and hotel guy. And I go to Hollywood. And uh, I wound up with a reality show, which is unbelievable. I, I thought I'd make a pilot and go home, to be honest with you. And when I got there, I said, boy, I got to have a great agent. I got to have a great agent. And I learned that, that you can't have an agent, really, unless you have a project. But yet, it's really hard to have a project if you don't have an agent. So there's some kind of yin-yang there that still to this day, even after having a successful television show, still doesn't make sense to me. But when I got there, I had a manager, so to speak, who was helping me negotiate my TV deal. And everybody I spoke to said to me, you got to be represented by Mark Itkin. Mark Itkin is the godfather of reality TV. Mark Itkin created more shows, more stars, more reality hours than anybody on TV. He invented the genre. I said, okay, man, I'm calling freaking Mark Itkin. So I call Mark Itkin, and I have a friend of mine, an agent, call Mark Itkin. And I'm told he's not calling back. And for about a year, eh, once a month or so, I called Mark Itkin, and he didn't call me back. About two years later, I get a phone call from this guy named Mark Itkin. And he says, listen, I'd like to represent you. So here's the interesting part of the story. I had a manager who I was asking to contact Mark Itkin on my behalf. And by the very nature of hiring Mark Itkin, he would be eliminating himself. So he never made the call. And for two years, I thought that I was leaving messages for Mark Itkin when, in fact, they weren't being left at all. Mark wound up calling me. He became my agent. We've done a lot of business together, book deals, and publishing deals, and other sorts of things. And as a result, Mark became one of my best friends. And a couple of years ago, we even rented cars and drove through Germany and all around Europe together, Mark, Nicole, and I. So Mark has become one of my best friends, but Mark has the coolest stories ever in television, packaging, uh, so 
celebrity stories, uh, uh, the uh, origination of television shows. And I'm talking to shows that all of you watch. So I'm really, really looking forward to my interview with Mark Itkin this week, which is really, really exciting. So we're going to be talking to Mike and Jocelyn. We're going to be talking to Mark Itkin. And uh, I got to give a quick hats off. To Michael Jordan, KC, did you hear what Michael did? Of course, I used to be a big Bulls fan. No, My wife too. is from Chicago, and I love Michael. He's donating $2 million to Hurricane Florence victims and cash money. You know, he owns the Charlotte Hornets, and of course, you know, that, that, that community is very important to him. He's giving a million dollars cash to the American Red Cross wow. and another million to the Foundation for the Carolinas, Hurricane Florence Response Fund. Wow. The Hornets are donating food boxes, and you know how I'm into that stuff and how I went down to Puerto Rico to make a difference. It's awesome to hear that Michael is doing it as well. To me, that is a lot of money. You can help an awful lot of people that way. You know, Casey, I'm like 6'3", six, 6'2 six, We've been together. I'm a little taller you, than you. You are, you are a very tall man. <laughs> I'm, I'm short. Man. It helps me when I scream at people on Bar Rescue. <laughs> Certainly, my height and size can work to my advantage. You've been intimidating a bit. Uh, but I was reading a fascinating article yesterday about a woman in China who was so short that she couldn't reach the handle in a bus. So she brought her, bought herself a plunger, a full-length, full-size toilet plunger. And when she gets <laughs> on a bus, she suctions the toilet plunger to the ceiling of the bus, and whammo, she's got her handle. <laughs> and I'm looking at a picture of her standing on the bus with the plunger – sucked to the ceiling and she's holding on to that wooden handle and uh, i just thought that was unbelievable uh, uh, injury but i guess when you're short and you're being thrown all over the bus you know you got to come up with something <laughs> that's what she came up with so you know i always thought it was an amazing thing years ago and i see you even wear them a little casey those distressed jeans that people buy right oh yeah it's a big trend everybody does it yeah, of course. So you think about it, that, you know, you're buying and, and people go to use big deal in Hollywood, right? Go to used clothing stores and get used jeans. And so, so the stress jeans are a big deal. When you think about it, they produce a new gene, they fade it, they, they beat the hell out of it with rocks and stuff to tear it, to create that distressed look. Well, good news, buddy. Nordstrom is now selling taped up worn sneakers. What? That you can now wear with your torn up worn jeans. So you got the whole freaking look down now. And they're only $530 a pair. So they call it the Superstar Taped Sneaker, created by upscale brand Golden Goose and sold on Nordstrom's website. Will feature crumpy, hold it together tape and a grungy, worn rubber sole. So now you can complete the look, buddy. You don't have any worries at all. You, you can look as. As freaking distressed as you want to look. Thank you, John. Thank you. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, not that you're a distressed guy, but, but I, I, you know, I, I think that 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 would really finish up your whole ensemble thing, because you are very fashion oriented. I think. <laughs> so here's another good one in Montgomery County. <laughs> the fire and rescue people have a picture of a, of a car in a huge public pool. And this was a driving school, and apparently, while getting her driving lesson, a woman drove her car into the pool. And uh, survived, a little wet, a little embarrassed, but it's always interesting to see a picture of a car in a pool that wasn't done for a Hollywood movie. And this woman really drove this car into this pool. So my daughter grew up in northwest Indiana. She was born in Chicago, Sam. I don't know if you knew that, Casey, but my daughter, Samantha, 
who is going to be 30 years old next month, is a, uh, a manager for a liquor distributor in the Midwest. And some of you communicate with her online. And Sam actually went to elementary school in northwest Indiana in an area called Porter County, which is really sort of a little outside of Chicago. It's suburban Chicago. And I'm reading an article today that a northwest Indiana school bus driver in her county from her school was letting three students, ages 11, 13, and 17, drive the freaking school bus. <laughs> so – as this 11-year-old kid is driving the school bus, they put cameras in these things now. So they're watching it on camera while these kids are driving this bus around the block. So needless to say, McAlfie is her name from Portage, Indiana, uh, will not be driving a school bus very often. All right, Casey, I got a straight question. Okay. Let's go back a few years to your wilder days. You're on a beach in Florida. It's about 6 in the morning. There's nobody around. Okay. And suddenly, about eight or ten huge bundles of pot come up and land on the beach. <laughs> this is a trick question. You look to your left. You look to your right. There's nobody there. You got a cell phone in your pocket. You could call the police and tell them to come pick it up. You could take some home. You could walk away. So you have choice A, walk away. Choice B, take a little home. Choice C, call the police. Now. Nobody knows your last name. Nobody knows where you live, so you can be straight about this. Are you going for A, B, or C? What are you doing? I, I think I'm going to go for choice choice B, I think. Choice B. So choice B is take some? <laughs> just a little bit, just, just, to, just to get yeah, my mind but, right. Right. So, so, so you, you would take a little bit and then, and then provide the rest to, to the uh, criminal authorities. To the authorities. <laughs> so, so I'd be curious to know what, what our listeners think about this. So, so – I'd love to know A, B, or C, guys. Uh, uh, go to at John Taffer at Twitter or on my Facebook page, either way, and, and tell me, would you go for A, uh, uh, do nothing? Is that what we said? A, do nothing. B, take a little for yourself. Or C, call the authorities. <laughs> I want to see how that poll works out, don't you? But for the record, John, I did turn it in. I still turned it in. You still turned it in, of I course. But you, you had to make certain it was, in fact, what it's supposed to be before you <laughs> yeah. turned it in. I mean, you don't want to turn in a bag of rose leaves, right, or anything yeah. like that. So it, it really wasn't a, a personal motive. It was a it was a public service, Casey, that you provided to verify the contents of the package. Yes. And, and, you know, I think that's an important public service that you provided. So I was reading an amazing article about Ticketmaster. And I got their scam down big time, buddy. I figured this out, and I know how to get you. So what they're doing, Ticketmaster, is they hold back tickets. Every seat is not available when the sale begins. So they hold back uh, 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 mid-scale seats, upscale seats, less expensive seats. They only make a certain amount of seats available. So now publicly, the concert sells out sooner, right? You got to get your ticket quick. And then what they do is they hold back seats to the end, and then they make them available in the peak of hype a few days before the show, a week before the show, however their science has them do it. And then, of course, the seats come in at a higher price, so they're, they're milking the consumer, which reminds me of my hotel days. And I think – Everybody's going to find this fascinating. You will, Casey. Years ago, when I used to run hotels, all the computerized reservation systems were starting. And we always wanted to raise the rate. 
KC, you always want to get that extra five, 10 or 20 bucks out of you. Always. So we would have regular rooms, double rooms, king rooms, and we started to change our room categories and mess with you just like Ticketmaster does. We created king poolside room. That was five or $10 more. The king recliner room. That was five or $10 more. The king business room with a desk. That was five or $10 more. The courtyard view, the upper floor. So now we took a basic room that sold for, let's say, 100 bucks, And now I take 80% of those rooms and I put an adjective in front of them, pool, business, courtyard, et cetera. And now 80% of those rooms are now $120, not $100, but they're the same freaking rooms. No matter what room you walked into, there's a recliner, there's a desk, and there's a window. So it's interesting how you can change categories in hotels. Then they took it a step further in the hotel industry, and uh, here's the look behind the curtain. Now they track all of our patterns, Casey. When do reservations come in the most? Do they come in the week before? Do they come in three weeks before? They measure the pace of reservations. They look at your rate, and it's called RIMS, Rooms Inventory Management. They know when a surge of reservations are going to come in, and that's when the rake hikes. So what they do is they assess the supply and demand. They calculate it out, identify the best opportunity. And the airlines now do this. There's economy seats. There's extra legroom seats. There's window seats. There's aisle seats. Everybody is cutting up their inventories to create premium elements in those inventories. And by doing so, they increase their revenues hugely. So Ticketmaster is doing that. So it tells me a couple of things. One, that you're probably not going to get the best seats till a little later before the show. But you can't hold out because if you do, you might not get any. So at the end of the day, they got us, don't they, KC? They got us. And that's the science of supply and demand. And, and doing that in the business. So when you go to a hotel and you see that, okay, if I get a king recliner, if I get a guest, there's nothing wrong with paying for those premium features. Just find out if those features are available in other rooms too because sometimes it isn't a different room. It's just a different category that they sell in. There's our hotel booking education lesson for today. Did you learn something, Casey? I wish I had I, known this, yeah, after I booked my hotel and I'm going back to Vegas in a few weeks. I wish I had known this, John, before I had booked <laughs> the uh, the poolside view is what I got at the MGM Grand. So, yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, so was the view good? It, you know what? It's nothing different than what I've had before, but they make you pay for it. I have no choice. They do make you pay for it. And it's interesting. Most people are only in their rooms at night when you can't see a damn thing out the window anyway. It's Las Vegas, for Christ's sake. You're not exactly spending a lot of time in your room. So, you know, uh, uh, here in Vegas, we are at Boomtown again. There's cranes everywhere, Casey. Hotels are packed. Uh, uh, the city is doing great. And I was on Fox last week, and I, and I was talking about some interesting statistics. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, Casey. 740,000 small businesses started last year. Pretty good number, you think, right? That's a lot of people leaving their jobs, starting small businesses, getting a jump in their life. I mean, that's exciting times for those 740,000 people and maybe more because some of them partners. Last quarter, just last quarter, 879,000 jobs, uh, not jobs, new small businesses were filed. So there's a bit of a boomtown thing going on. So, you know, for people out there, when I look at it a little step further, employee confidence is really high right now. Business confidence is really high right now. People are investing, spending money. So if somebody was thinking of starting a business, 
If somebody was thinking of getting ahead, uh, 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 this is the time. But Casey, there was one statistic that I read that was incredible to me. Okay. Last month, 3.1 million people quit their jobs. It's the quit factor. And I've never studied that statistic before. But the quit factor is a great, great component of assessing confidence. You see, if you think that there's a huge likelihood that you could get a job paying you 50% more, you're very likely to quit. So it speaks to the confidence out there. So 3.1 million people quit their jobs either to go to a better job or start their own business just last month. And that's a record-breaking number. Not good for employers because you're losing employees and people are moving around a lot today. But it's a fascinating statistic when you think about what's going on in America right now. Would you have ever thought such a thing? So I have a couple of pretty cool announcements to make that, that I'm pretty excited about, Casey. I'm, I'm pretty excited generally, don't, don't you think? So, so uh, uh, I am now finished, and I can't say the who's, the what's, and the where's, but I am now finishing up uh, uh, the first deal for a Taffer Bar in Vegas on the Strip. And we'll have an announcement to make about that within the next 60 days, and that should be opening during the winter. I'm pretty excited about that, Casey. What? Not bad, huh, buddy? Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, uh, I'm partners in a whiskey distillery up in northern Nevada called uh, uh, Frey Ranch, and we're very excited. We're bringing our first bourbon to market in just a few months. We're finalizing the bottle and the labels. I'm pretty excited about that. So those are two biggies. And I got a third one for you that I've never even mentioned to anyone ever, and that is I've developed with some friends of mine a uh, cocktail mixer line called Taffer Mixology, and one of the largest national retailers in America. We're finalizing a deal to get that product on their shelves. So it's been a really – all of this, by the way, happened just last week. So it's been a heck of a week. It's amazing what happens when you come home. It's really hard to do business when you're on the road. So there are some exciting things going on, and I'll be talking about them over the next couple of weeks as I am allowed to talk about them. And uh, 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 it's, for me, really exciting to be able to do these things, create these products, and, and opening a bar in Las Vegas on a strip has been a dream of mine for a very, very long time. And we're talking center strip, buddy. This is a heck of a location. So are you going to come to my opening? Oh, yeah, I'll be there. Believe me, I, I will stumble into it and stumble out, John, just in your honor. <laughs> I bet you will. You, well, you're going to stumble out. I'm not sure you'll stumble in, but you will stumble out. So, so we're putting a little podcast area in there, so we'll be able to broadcast a podcast from there when we want to. I'll be stopping by all the time, and I'll make sure that all the listeners know where and when, when the opening is. And I think we should have a No Excuses special listener preview party. What do you think? Yes, yes, yes. So let's everybody listen, and, and uh, uh, as that comes together, uh, uh, I'll let everybody know. So a uh, lot going on. Last thing is I'm starting my new show for Paramount Network, Not Bar Rescue. It's a new show, and don't get scared. Casey, I know you're a Bar Rescue fan. Bar Rescue's not going anywhere. Okay. We have 11, 11 episodes left that nobody's ever seen that we already shot, and I just agreed to do 12 more that we start in January. So there's 23, 23 New episodes coming that nobody's seen, and we'll continue making more after that. But I'm doing six episodes of a brand new show for Paramount. Has nothing to do with bars. Has a lot to do with relationships. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but I start shooting it in three weeks. And I got to tell you, Casey, I'm pretty freaking excited about it, man. It's going to be. It's going to be a great show. We're shooting six episodes. We didn't even go to pilot, so I'm pretty excited about that. How is your marriage doing? <laughs> uh, you like that answer? <laughs> so, 
the other day somebody said, how long have you been married? And, of course, my answer was too long, but that's not true. Yeah. I'm a very happily married man. All right, buddy. So I'm really excited about what's going on this week. So, so you know, we have Michael and Jocelyn to talk to, which I'm really excited about, and we have Mark Itkin. So before we go too far, I want to bring Mark Itkin out here. What do you think? Let's do it. So, so, so Mark Itkin, I must tell everybody, is a dear, dear friend of mine. And if you Google Mark Itkin, I-T-K-I-N, you're going to find out that he's the godfather of reality TV. This guy has put together, packaged, created more reality shows than anyone. I'm talking not five, six, eight, ten. We're talking 20, 30, 40 of these shows. He's one of my dearest friends. And I've always wanted to have a very candid interview with Mark since I started this podcast because he has so many things to say about personal growth, Hollywood, getting into the business, and how we can all translate his success into our own lives. So when I come back, we'll be with Mr. Itkin. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Support for No Excuses comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process, which is really cool. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credits to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer far more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash taffer. That's rocketmortgage.com slash taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Hey guys, it's never a good look when you untuck a long, bulky dress shirt. You may think it makes you look casual, but more than likely it just ends up looking sloppy. That's why Untuck It makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. A casual shirt that's not too long, not too short, it's just right. Shirts designed so well, GQ calls them perfection. Untucked shirts are a go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy. And not only do they look good, they feel great. And if you're a woman wishing you can have one of these, well, Untucked now makes shirts for women too. Shirts for her that are casual, versatile, and designed to last. Log into untuckit.com and check out all the new arrivals and use the promo code TAFFER for 20% off your entire purchase. That's 20% off your entire purchase. You can also visit one of the Untuckit's over 25 retail locations across the country. Stop hiding your shirt with your pants and your pants with your shirt. Untuckit.com, your solution to perfecting casual. Use promo code TAFFER for 20% savings for first-time customers. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Hi, Mark. Hi, John. So, uh, uh, in full disclosure, Mark is is one of my dearest friends. And about, I guess it was two years ago, buddy, we drove through Germany and Austria. Was it two years ago? 
Yeah, a little over two years ago. We drove through and got to spend almost two weeks. Nicole, my wife, Mark, and I drove all around Europe in Porsche convertibles. And, and uh, Mark is a car enthusiast like I am and is was a Porsche guy. And then he had me buy a Porsche and then bailed <laughs> on me and bought another car. But in any event, we, we are very, very good friends. And, and I wanted Mark to be on this podcast because to me, and you're going to blush a little bit, Mark, uh, Mark's behavior and attitude in life is, is a formula of success that, that everybody could learn from. And I find your background interesting, buddy, when, when I know about the fact that, that you uh, uh, started in law school, right? Yep. UCLA. And then from law school, what was your first job? Well, I, I, I went to Berkeley for law. I went undergrad to UCLA. I went to Berkeley for law school. And then I worked as a music lawyer at a law firm here in Los Angeles named Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nupp. So you did very well in school. You, you were very well disciplined. You worked hard in school, got great yep. grades, uh, made it to UC Berkeley, got your law degree there. And yep. then you assumed the position as an attorney in, in L.A., in the music yes. business, when yes. did because I happen to know you well, Mark is a DJ. He's a great DJ. <laughs> I've seen him do it, and I've listened to some discs that he's made for me over the years. When did that come into your life? I was a DJ <clears throat> on KLA, which was the radio station at UCLA, and I did that about for about three of the four years I was at UCLA. I started off as a newscaster. And then worked my way into being a DJ. And uh, I used to, uh, my first schedule was Saturday and Sunday mornings from 6 to 9. And I used to play music for my girlfriend who lived in the dorm. <laughs> and then, uh, they, then they were happy with the work I was doing. And they moved me to drive time in the afternoon. And I did that for almost two years. So, so, so you're practicing as an attorney in music. I'm guessing you're doing licensing and talent deals and distribution and, and, and you know, uh, uh, law work like that. I'm guessing. Then yeah, I did, I did uh, recording contracts, publishing contracts. Um, we had we had some pretty amazing clients. And uh, 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 what was the one lesson you took from there when you went to your next position? If I could corner you, it was your first job. I uh, don't. Do anything in life if you don't love it or are not passionate about it. So that was the lesson from your first job. So you left there after about two years and went where? <laughs> I kind of went off the grid for about 10 months. Um, I moved up to San Francisco where I went to law school. And um, I wanted to just kind of figure out what the next move was going to be. I really didn't know what, what I wanted to do. And I had always been such a good student and I had always been working to put myself through school that I just kind of needed some time out. And San Francisco is a great place to go and you know, kind of find yourself. And uh, that's what I did. I did it for 10 months. And after about eight months, I got so bored that uh, I came back. And what did you do when you came back? I went in, well, <laughs> while I was up there, one morning I had breakfast with a dear friend of mine who I considered sort of um, my rabbi at the time. Uh, his name is Lee Mims and he was a music and he was a music manager um, and a talent manager at the time. And he came up to San Francisco. I had bartended for him at parties when I was in, at UCLA 
And it was just a, he was just a nice man who uh, was always very supportive of me. And we had breakfast one morning and I said to him, you know, I'm bored stiff. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to go back and be a lawyer. And he says to me, I think you might be a very good agent. Would you like me to make some phone calls for you when I get back to L.A.? And I said, sure, what I got to lose. I'd, something I'd never thought about. Mm-hmm. And uh, he set up a meeting um, for me with some people at the William Morris Agency, some of his friends. And I went down in uh, October of 1981 and had a meeting with those guys. And it sounded kind of interesting. And I thought, hmm, maybe this is something I, I should uh, really think about. So what was your first position? Uh, and it was then William Morris Agency. Correct. So the William Morris Agency was the world's most famous talent agency, right? And, and oh, certainly, yeah. I yeah. believe, most influential at its time. Matter of fact, it had a street named after it in Beverly Hills. And uh, uh, when you joined William Morris, what was your position? I was an agent trainee. I went into the mailroom. So you went into the mailroom. So there's a lesson to be learned here. First of all, uh, you went through college. You got a law degree. After law, you weren't sure you wanted to do law. You didn't know what you wanted to do with your life. So your plan changed. You know, it's interesting. My brother went to law school and, and didn't become a practicing attorney. My father went to law school, hated it, and wound up buying a business out of bankruptcy and went into a completely different business. So, so. Uh, it's not unusual for attorneys to go to law school and go into a different business. So here you are, and it's an amazing thought. You're an attorney from UC Berkeley working in the mailroom of William Morris as an agent trainee. Tell me the story because what, what people are going to be blown away uh, by this interview is really, Mark, in so many ways you created reality TV, contemporary reality TV. And you know that, and 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 you were almost the black sheep of the agency when you did it. Tell everybody about the very beginnings of reality TV and 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 how that began, and and how you went into an area that nobody wanted. Well, I mean, you know, there's been, I, you know, I I call it non-scripted TV because a lot of it these days isn't real. But what everybody knows is reality TV you know, really have been around for many years. I mean, Alan Funk created it with Candy Camera yeah. on radio in the late 40s. And so, you know, during the during the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, there are game shows and talk shows and sports entertainment. Once in a while, you'd find a game show on in primetime. You know, in the 50s, they were very popular in primetime. Yep. But by the 70s, you know, at least in primetime television, it was mainly scripted television, dramas and comedies. The agency had a department called the Variety Department. And it was because there was a lot of variety shows on TV, you know, like uh, Carol Burnett and things of that sort. So anything that wasn't scripted fell into that department. So anything that was daytime or syndication or primetime non-scripted fell into that department. And that was an area that interested me. But it didn't interest a lot of other people, did it? it didn't interest anybody. In fact, in fact, there were most of the people doing it at that time were booking celebrities on talk shows. We represented the Merv Griffin show, booking celebrities on the on that show, um, representing hosts and directors that worked on other people's shows. But nobody was really packaging much in that area. We had already packaged the original People's Court. 
And we had packaged, you know, some other daytime and syndicated things way back in the 70s. But nobody had done anything for a long time. Nobody really cared about it. Nobody really didn't want, wanted to even bother with it. Everyone wanted to be in primetime TV. Yeah, and and you know, for the audience, packaging is is you're finding a format, a show, or you're creating it. You're finding a production company to produce it. You're finding the talent to be in it. Then you're pitching it to a network to try to sell it. In essence, what when you say package, you're putting all the pieces together to take an idea and turn it into a sellable, producible show. Correct. Correct. And, What's amazing to me, and listeners are going to be blown away by this, you've packaged Real World, Project Runway, Hell's Kitchen, Kitchen Nightmares, Deal or No Deal, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, Tyler Perry's House of Pain, Tyler Perry's Meets the Browns, Big Brother, Fear Factor, People's Court, Ricky Lake Show, American Gladiators, Biggest Loser, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I could probably go on with another 10 or 15 more, couldn't I? Uh, thank you, John. <laughs> I had a good run. <laughs> yeah, amazing run. And really, the work that you did, you did in an environment where it was very iffy if you'd be able to sell it. And, you know, if I were to translate that to another business, Mark, you left a law firm as a Berkeley attorney. You had a cush situation. You could have stayed there, made a wonderful living, right? Became a partner, and life would have been fine. So, what you did is instead of that, you took a shot in a whole new venture that was high risk. You could have blown it. People sort of almost looked at you as a black sheep at the time a little bit, right, on that side of the company, not in feature films or scripted television. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, and that's no different than a guy saying, you know what, I'm going all in on a business and leaving my job, which is sort of what you did. So now you're in there and you start to package these shows. Which was the first one that was successful that you started to say, wow, there's some traction here? I think the first one that was really successful was American Gladiators, of which, you know, I, I've told this story so many times, but it took about six and a half years to get that sold and on the air. I want to tell a story, which, which I've said to you, of course, before, but I'd love the audience to hear the story. So I go to Hollywood I'm, I, to shoot a pilot. And I'm told you got to get a manager if you're going to be in a reality show business. So I say, who, who's the who's the best agent in Hollywood? Well, everybody, well, Mark Itkin over at, at WME uh, is the best reality television agent in the world. So now I get a pilot, and uh, uh, I hear this name, Mark Itkin, Mark Itkin, Mark Itkin. Now my pilot is picked up, and I go to series, and I have a manager, and there's a lesson for us all to learn in this. I won't say any names, but I have a manager, and I say to the manager, listen. I want an agent, but I found when you go in a TV business, if you don't have a TV show, it's tough to get an agent. And if you don't have an agent, it's tough to get a TV show. I still haven't figured that out, Mark, even being on TV for eight years. But in any event, I say to my manager, I want to call this guy, Mark. My manager keeps telling me, you know, I call, I call, I call. He just doesn't apparently want to talk to you. He's not interested in you, doesn't want to talk to you. So I never, ever get to speak to this legend, Mark. About... Three years later, I get a phone call from Mark Itkin's office. I'm guessing you're smiling on the other end of the phone. And it's Mark Itkin call his office calling me, and they're interested in talking to me to represent me. So I go in and I meet Mark Itkin, and I learn the first thing about Mark Itkin is never does he not return a phone call, no matter who it is. 
Never does he not respond to anything. Uh, the follow-through is remarkable. So I realized then, so, so I asked Mark, had you gotten any phone calls? He said, no, no, I would have called you back. And I realized that the person that I asked to call Mark would have been financially, in theory's role reduced if I hired the agent. So in theory, I learned a big life lesson during that, Mark. I learned that you don't want to ask the person who is vulnerable when they introduce you to somebody else. And uh, uh, for that reason, I didn't get to meet Mark for two more years. So I made a mistake, and, and I, I asked the wrong people to elevate because they would have eliminated themselves. And I met Mark about three years later. Mark represented me for about a year and a half, I think, and then retired, and we still work together. That's the joy of friendship. <laughs> and, being, and, and once retired, being able to pick and choose what you want to do and who you want to do it with. Yeah, so you're at William Morris for how many years, Mark? 34. 34 years. And, and, you know, I knew you when you were leaving, and I know you traveled all around the world with other agents setting people up and turning it over. And what's interesting also about Mark Itkin is that, that Mark Itkin's greatest claim to fame really isn't the TV shows. I think your greatest claim to fame, your greatest legacy, Mark, is not on TV. I think your greatest legacy is all the people that you've trained and all the people that you've impacted. Because the greatest agents that I meet when I work in the world, William Morris, and I have literary agents and commercial agents, and you know all the agents uh, uh, that are around us, the ones that are trained by Mark Kitkin are always the best. Oh, thank you, John. That, that, you're right. That is so important to me. And, and, and yeah, thank you for saying that. When did you realize how important that was to you? Uh, I realized it early on as I was building my department, because if I didn't have a great team around me, I couldn't do what I was able to do. I needed to have, you know, as, as I always said, the way I managed was I want everyone around me to be a star. I'm not, I, I don't have any ego or was intimidated or worried about someone taking my job. You know, a lot of people in, in management and executives worry about that. They have that insecurity. Yep. I figured if I got the best team around me, it only makes me look great and it makes everybody on the team look great. And that's how we became really the, the best non-scripted packaging department in the business. But then also people wanted to work for you. And it wasn't just you know, uh, 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 that you were in unscripted. It was who you are. Because I hear the stories all the time when I go out to lunch with the agents, how you know working for Itkin was a score. Because when you worked for Itkin, you, you were trained different. There was a greater commitment to them. And, and as a result, you've how many people have gone through your hands that are now agents? Oh, my God. Um, I would say of, that are out there today still practicing, there's probably 20. 20 to 25 people, but I think over the years, there's probably a good 30 to 35 people I was able to uh, to train. Some went into other businesses. Some decided they didn't want to be agents. Um, some didn't want to be in the entertainment business anymore, but um, they were all good, honest, hardworking people with integrity. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. You know, I, I had the honor of knowing your mom, uh, and Mark lost his mom uh, several weeks ago. Uh, may she rest in peace and, and Thank I, have you. The pleasure, I have the pleasure of knowing Mark's sister, Robin, as well. 
and uh, uh, so your mom thought you were going to be an attorney. So now, what did she say when when? Because uh, I know your mom is very supportive of who and what uh, 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 people are and what they do. How did she react when you said, "Mom, I'm going in the mail room"? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I was afraid to tell them, my parents at the time, because, listen, you know, they had put me through school. It wasn't as expensive as it is today, but they put me through school. I was a really good student. They had all these high expectations of me being a lawyer. They didn't want me to be in the entertainment business because I had always told them I wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to be in radio. And, um... But they knew I wasn't happy being a lawyer. And when I when I told them what I, I was going to be doing, they didn't quite understand what it was. But as time went on and they, they saw how happy I was and the success I had, they knew that I, I made the right decision and they trusted me. Did you ever think that you didn't when you first went into America? Was there any point when you said, oh, shit, what the <laughs> hell do? Yes. <laughs> Yes, there there were um, there were times. Um, you know, listen, everything is political, and there were people inside the agency that were intimidated by me and tried to, you know, tried to to thwart my success and 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 prevent me from getting promoted or when I was promoted to kind of kind of stall me. But um, the people at the very top knew my value i was fortunate to train under the desk of uh on the desk of a man named jerry katzman who ran the television department who was a legend in the business and i had mentors like norman brokaw and lou weiss and walt zifkin and debbie miller people who were important people in the company and uh they they just allowed me to do what i wanted to do you know today everybody's in the content business and, you know, if I was a 15-year-old kid at home, I could become a YouTube star. And, you know, I can create real Internet activity. And people create, as, you, as we know, you know, thousands of what we'll call shows, online shows that they do and produce and stuff. And I'm going to ask you a really hard question, but, I, but if anybody can answer it, you can. What makes great content? Well, great content is, to me, is great characters and great storytelling. In whatever fashion it is, whether it's fictional people or non-fictional people, and how the story is told, um, because if it's good characters and good storytelling, it's going to be accessible and relate to people. It's going to it's going to touch them somehow, personal experience, aspirational, what have you. And so, to me, it's all about great storytelling and great characters. And uh, 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 it's interesting. I had the vice president of uh, production for the Las Vegas Golden Knights, the NHL hockey team, on a few weeks ago. And he was talking about sports production. And, you know, and before this, he was with the WWE. doing. And I said to him, I said, Johnny, what makes great sports content? And he said, storytelling. <laughs> Which well, I would have expected a sports guy to say. Let me, let me tell you this very quickly. So Arthur Smith, who was my client for, for many years and who is one of the, the great executive producers and who comes from sports. So he gets this show call that was on um, G4, a little show for, um, from Japan called American Ninja Warrior. And it, and it was doing OK. But Arthur is a great storyteller and he amped that show up. 
and put it and, and it ended up and there's a long story about how it ended on NBC and everything, but he he made that show what it is. And that show, what makes it great is about the storytelling and the rooting interest for those contenders. I feel that way. So, you know, I'm always blown away by this because Bar Rescue has been on TV for so long. And uh, I don't ask you this question in reference to myself, but for those who who do make content and are on camera, what makes a great host, Mark? Because you look at thousands to pick 50 in in all of your career. What makes a great host? Well, okay, so not to embarrass you, but I think a great host is somebody who is genuine genuinely interested in other people and who listens because you can't be a great host if you don't listen and you have to like people and you have to be genuinely interested in people and you have to be real. If you get up there and in, 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 in a hosting situation and it's not, a, you're not playing a character being yourself, you can smell what's real and what's not. And so the greatest hosts are people that you feel you can touch, that you could invite them into your home. They could be a friend. And I think that's what I mean, obviously, that's how I feel about you. But I think that's how the audience feels about you. You say things that people at home are thinking. They may not be, um, you know, pleasant things to hear sometimes, but it's real. You know, and I, I think that was that's one of the brilliance of what you do. And I always said the brilliance of Simon Cowell when he in his initial days on uh, American Idol and what really made him a star is that he was to- he was just completely honest and he told how he felt and he didn't sugarcoat things. And you're the same way, John. You know, people love that genuine communication. What could you say to somebody who who is is Looking forward, and, you know, we talked about your life, and I want to make this meaningful to, to our listeners about, you know, how, how you were really disciplined in life, and, and you went into a very structured environment as an attorney in education, then went into a structured career in education, how you had the courage uh, uh, to walk away and, and walk into a new business in the mailroom, throw the ego away, you're at the bottom of the totem pole, go into the most undesirable department in the company, work years to make that department work, turn it into a phenomenal success, one of the biggest money makers, I'm guessing, in William Morris. And, 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 and now, later in life, and I don't want to embarrass you, you got a few bucks in the bank, you got two or three residences around the world, you drive what you want to, you go where you want to, you do what you want to, you're around who you want to be at this stage in your life. What do you do now, Mark? How do you challenge yourself? How do you keep going? When you've won all the awards, and, you know, the shows have been on and the excitement and the ratings. And what is it that keeps you excited? I'm, I'm very curious. <clears throat> I'm, I'm very, it sounds so cliche, but I mean, I'm just, I love to learn new things. And I love, I love watching things on television. I love reading books. I'm reading two or three books at a time. I'm just curious about things. And when and it's amazing what curiosity does, because as, as you know, I did something recently which I'd never done in my life. I actually sold a movie. And the, how that came about was purely curiosity. I was watching something on television. It interested me. I went and Googled the personality. 
I read I read the Wikipedia. I saw at the bottom that the person had written a, an autobiography. I bought the autobiography, blew me away, went and got the rights to it, did some packaging with agents and other producers, and sold it as a movie. And that's and <laughs> I never desired to be in the movie business when I was agenting. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but it was out of curiosity and interest. I love pop culture. I love the arts. You know, I love music and TV and film. And and um, and so I, I just leave myself open with a passion to, as I did, I've done all my life, you know, not be afraid to try things. I'm pretty fearless. So am I, buddy. Maybe that's why we love each other so much. Definitely. When I was a young kid, I was a bartender in LA. I won't mention where. And I was making about $700 a week back when $700 was a good amount of money. And and the owner comes up to me and says, would you like to be a manager? And I said, yeah, I'd love to be a manager. What's the pay? $225 a week. I had to go down from $700 cash back then as a bartender to $225 a week in a paycheck. For me, it was a no-brainer choice. Yep. it was to keep my life where it was and stagnant or to make a step forward. And for you, you went from attorney's pay to mailroom, starting agent's pay. and Which, John, pay- by the way, was $225 a week the first That's week. That's funny. It's probably about the same time, too, because we're close to the same age. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah, no, no, that's, I think, why you and I connect, because we look at life the same way, you know? But there's a lesson for everybody in this. And that is, you got to believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, then you really have the courage to do these things. Because at the end of the day, Mark, Mark Itkin bet on Mark Itkin when you took that job in the mailroom that day. And, and I bet on myself every day. And if we don't bet on ourselves, then we can't win the bet. And I think that's one of the most powerful lessons in Mark Gitkin's life is not only follow up and, and relationships, but but you know you really have to to, to step up to win, and, and you took a lot of chances uh, uh, to do this, and and so did I, and that's why we love each other. So, Mark, this has been a, a, a lot of fun. I was hoping to talk a little more about some music and and, and you know some of the other projects uh, uh, that you're working on. So, can we do a part B one of these days and get you back? Anytime you want, my friend. Anytime. Well, if you haven't looked up Mark Itkin, uh, do so on Google. It's it's a fascinating story, the beginnings of, of unscripted television. And Mark is one of my dearest friends. And this was a lot of fun, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, people that know me know I operate my businesses and I have my consulting practice and other businesses, but I also produce a television show and that takes me on the road 30 weeks a year. And the biggest frustration in my entire professional life is trying to run my business from the road. It's incredibly frustrating and I have to go online and access my computer screens online. And one of the biggest frustrations I have is payroll. That's why I'm so excited to introduce the new Square Payroll app, which brings a crucial element of any business's back office to your back pocket. With the Payroll app, employers can manage one of their most important yet complicated aspects of running their business, no matter where they are. The Payroll app joins Square's ecosystem of mobile tools that makes it faster and easier for employers to run and grow their business while on the go. With Square's payroll app, employers can go from sign-up to sending a pay run in a matter of minutes, all within the app. 
Employers can review time cards while sourcing inventory across town, review tax forms while heading to meet a new supplier, or pay employees while you're walking home. And features like push notifications and automatic payroll ensure employers never forget to send payroll ever again. This is really cool. You've got to check out the app. Search Square Payroll in the Apple iTunes or Google Play app stores to download the app or visit square.com slash go slash taffer to learn more. That's square.com slash go slash taffer. There's a lot we can learn uh, from Mark's life, you know, and there's such a common thread from all the guests we have. The fact of the matter is it rarely comes easily, but when it does come, man, is it sweet. Speaking of sweet, KC, my favorite part of the show. So this is our listener call-in part, and uh, I'll talk to anyone about just about anything. So if you'd like to be on the show and talk to me, just send me an email to podcast at johntaffer.com. That's podcast at johntaffer.com, and you could be on the show with me, too. So, KC, who do we got this week? So, John, we've got Birdo from New York City who uh, wants to start an MMA gym with him and his brother and uh, wants to know if he's going down the right path. Birdo, nice to talk to you, buddy. Hi, John. Uh, big fan. Um, yeah, so my brother and I have, uh, we've been training for MMA for about eight years, and uh, we uh, finally decided to, like, this is the, this is our time to uh, to try to start our own MMA gym. Um, we have, a, like, a very strong standing in the community. A lot of people, like, like us, respect us. Uh, own, gym owners have also, uh, they like us, respect us, and pretty much everyone we've told has all, everyone has been excited about uh, what we've wanted to do. And I guess my biggest question is like, as a, as a opening up a business full time, uh, for the first time, what advice could you give me of what things to look out for? What, how to, uh, like any advice that you would have? Sure. First of all, uh, uh, uh and you know, Bert, I'm a pretty direct kind of guy. You're not, yeah. you're not opening a gym. You're opening a sales organization. You happen to be selling mm-hmm. a gym and you got to know that. Because if you don't sell memberships, you're not going to succeed. So in a business like a gym or many other businesses that are similar to that, membership-based businesses, they're sales organizations. And everything about the business is a slave to sales, meaning the, the experience of a member must drive more sales, referrals. I mean, we got to do a great job within the four walls of the gym, really make people happy so that we drive sales. But we have to do three things to make money. One, you have to generate leads. Two, you got to get those leads into the building so they see the gym. And then three, you got to close them to become a member. And those are the three things that I'm guessing you haven't done before. So you know about the training, the setup, the equipment, the different circuits that you want people to do in training, and you know all that. What you got to learn is a sales business. So how do you generate leads? Do you do it with partnerships with other businesses, sports supply stores, uh, boxing clubs, uh, uh, other types of trainers that work in people's homes and work in other gyms? you got to create an environment to generate leads. Next, mm-hmm. got to have somebody answer that phone who knows what the hell they're doing. So if they say, you know, do you have such and such a piece of equipment? The answer is, you know what, Berto? I'd like you to come into the gym so I can show you this and answer all your questions. How much is it a month? Well, um, Berto, I'd like you to come in. Let me show you about the whole program. Are you guys open at night? Uh. Yeah, we have flexible hours. Come on in. Let me show you the place. So everything on the phone is about getting them in. Every question is answered to get them in. 
You know, do you have do you yes. have a, a snack bar? We do. That's why I want you to come in so I can show it to you. Do you have this? Yes. That's why I want you to come in. So, I, so next we get them in, and you got to have a percentage of the people that call to the people that come in. And if we don't get 60% of them to come in from who call, we're going to fail. Next. Once they come in and sit down in the gym, we got to close half of them, which means we got to have we have to be able to generate leads, have phone skills to get them in, and have closing skills to get them on board. Once that happens, you and your brother know how to take care of them, don't you? Yes, I mean honestly, look, we we're very confident that once people come in, when they see how we train, how we train people, how we teach class, even the environment that we create in the gym. That uh, once they see that culture that we've created, I'm very confident that they will stay. Great. So what you need to do is you need to sit with your brother and say, okay, well, how do we generate leads? What partners, what contacts, and there's a term I'll use for you, centers of influence. For example, a trainer might have 30 or 40 clients that he could bring to your gym. So he's a center of influence. You want to get him to work out of your gym, not another gym. So you, we talk to your brother about where are we going to generate leads? Who's going to handle the sales of those leads on the phone? Who's going to close them? Because the quicker we get members, the quicker we're profitable. Make sense, buddy? Yes. Yes, sir. And with your passion for the business and serving people, uh, 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 you'll do great because you know this. It's all about reactions, right, and how people feel yes, when sir. they leave your gym. And if you make them feel that they've been productive, they've accomplished something, and that they're cared for, and that you care about them, then uh, 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 you'll keep them. If you got that down, just fill in that sales puzzle, and my guess is you'll, you'll hit a home run, buddy. Good luck. Thank you very much, sir. John, let's go over to Eddie in Hesperia, California, who's a huge bar rescue fan, feels like a lot of the bar owners don't know what they're doing. He wants to open his own bar and wonders if a business degree is the right way to go. Hey, Eddie, how are you, buddy? I'm good. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I am a huge bar rescue fan. I'm a huge fan of yours, and I love what you're doing out there. Uh, thank you, buddy. So you're thinking of opening a bar? Yeah, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I've been a DJ for over 10 years, um, in entertainment in and, uh, all over the place. And I decided to go back to school to get a business degree because one thing I noticed from watching your show, time after time, people kind of fall into bars in the sense that they inherit them or they kind of just buy a successful bar from somebody else, but they don't ever seem to know how to run a business. Forget serving drinks. The business side of things is, is what's going to make or break it in the end. It's absolute truth. You know, too many people go into the bar business, Eddie, because they like to drink or they like to hang out with people. But, but you know, labor cost will run about 30% of revenue. That's a big number. It's got to be managed really effectively by the hour. You can't spend more than 30% of your revenue per hour on labor. So that takes a business mentality to manage schedules and make sure you hit that number. When you manage right. beverage cost... Beverage costs, which is the cost of the product in the glass, should never be more than 21% of revenue. So, you know, they can't overpour. The pricing has to be right based upon what the product costs. So you got to look at a glass. This is 30 cents an ounce. That's 14 cents. This is 18 cents. It's got to be priced properly. And again, that's a business mentality. You have to look at the numbers and put that together. Then marketing is about 5% of revenue and promotion. And then A and G, administrative in general, can run about 3 to 4% of revenue. When you put all those things together, buddy, you know, you got 30% labor, 21% in, in beverage. That's 51% of revenue right there. Then you add the other 
10% is typically rent and occupancy cost. So now we're at 61%. Add marketing, administrative, and general costs. You're at 70%. Add some other maintenance and upkeep and taxes and things like that. Now you're up at 80%. A bar only profits 15 to 20%, 25% tops. So you, Eddie, with a business degree and the ability to manage and understand those numbers are going to make that 15 to 20%. Somebody else is going to miss that target and not make that money. So you're exactly right, buddy. Uh, uh, that now, business do you feel that me success. getting the degree is enough or should I find somebody to partner with that has that experience already? Either way. You can get the knowledge in either case. Now, partnerships are, are, are an interesting thing, and if you're going to be a partner, then you know I'm not a I'm not a believer in sixty forty partnerships or seventy thirty partnerships. If I'm a partner with somebody, it's fifty fifty, and I do it that way because fifty fifty partnerships force the two partners to talk when there's a problem because nobody can say I own fifty one percent. F you, I'm doing what I want. So 50-50 deals are very healthy. They cause people to talk and require them to work together to move forward. If you have the right partner who's prepared to write a check and come in with you, that's a great way to get a 3 to your head start versus a business degree. It isn't that hard, Eddie. There's only eight or ten numbers that you got to manage really well. And if you have a numbers orientation, you can do it. Uh, uh, so a business degree is not a prerequisite. It's helpful, but a great partner is probably just as helpful. Got it, got it. I had one more question. Like I said, I love Bar Rescue. I watch all of them every Sunday. I'm sitting right there doing the marathon every all day. Be flipping between that and football, of course. But my question to you is: Why are there not shows that help people start something? And, and for instance, like you have Bar Rescue. There's shows out there that help people fix up their rundown homes. There's help. There's shows that help people fix up their wardrobe. How about like a bar startup? You know, it's funny. I've, I've pitched that show a couple of different times to a number of different networks. And the problem is that, oh, it, 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 A, it's a long process. It takes six months by the time you find it, design it, build it, get it staffed. So it's a very slow process. So to shoot a show like that would take me a month or two. To shoot Bar Rescue takes us four days. So that's a big deal right there. The cost is huge to shoot the kind of show you're talking about. The other thing is people love the story of struggle. And they do. And, you know, opening a bar for you puts the struggle on me. Am I going to pull it off? Am I going to hit it on budget? Can Taffer do it? Can Taffer do it? Turning a bar and struggling it puts the pressure on them. And I think that's a big shift in the way uh, uh, the show connects with people. It's much more relatable to them when it's the owners going through the struggle more than me going through the struggle trying to get the place open. That's my guess, but I'm with you, buddy. I've tried to pitch it a few times. As a matter of fact, I'm working on opening my bar in Las Vegas, and I'm even looking to get that one on TV, the struggles of opening that. So I hope one day I do. That would be awesome. I can't wait to see it if you do, and I can't wait to go there when it opens. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I hope this was helpful. Very much so. Keep up the good work, and uh, thank you for your time. Take care, Eddie. All right. Let's uh, cruise over to... Robert, who's in Hawaii, and it's kind of along the same lines, John, but he wants to know, is it worth going to bartending school to learn how to open a bar? Hey, Robert. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Yeah, so um, I've been watching your show for since it's been on, since 2011. I'm in the military, actually stationed over here in Hawaii. And my goal is to own a sports bar, but I was wondering if, like, there's a bartending school out here that I was thinking about going to. Do you think that's beneficial? 
in the in the long run to at least to know how to like make drinks and like what goes into it. Well, first of all, Robert, I want to thank you for your sacrifice, buddy, and your service. So first, I want to thank you for that. And you know, if it wasn't for Americans like you, uh, uh, we wouldn't be here, even having this conversation. Thank you. So, so it starts right there, buddy, with my hats off and respect for you and your service to us. So I used to own a bunch of bartending schools. And bartending schools is you typically go for about 40 hours, you know, five days at eight hours or 10 days at four hours. And it teaches you recipes, but it also teaches your way around a bar. So you learn where the workstations are, how to use a POS system. You learn what a speed well is versus a back bar. You learn a proper way to set up a station. It's more than just learning that, you know, a godfather is an ounce and a half of this and a half ounce of that and so and so is this. So, yes, I would suggest it. The other thing uh, uh, that I think is important, Robert, is when you do own the bar and you watch your bartenders, you should know what the hell they're doing. So yeah. as an owner, you know, if they overpour, you should be able to see that from 50, 60 feet away because the bottle is upside down for more than three and a half seconds. You'll learn that in bartending school. You'll learn the way colors, the way drinks should look, the texture, what glass they glow in. You'll be able to better manage your bartending staff. So, yes, it typically isn't very expensive, and I do recommend it. And I'm guessing some of your uh, uh, benefits might actually help pay for it, right? They would, yeah. That's why. That's another reason why I'm very considering it. Yeah, I really think you should, buddy. It's a great way to get a great education. Again, learn your way around a bar. And who knows? You might open a bar that you have to tend bar every once in a while because somebody gets the flu or gets sick. Or so it's good to know. All right, thank, thanks, John. And uh, keep on doing the show. I'm always watching. <laughs> uh, thank you, buddy. And keep keep us all safe. Okay. I will. All right. Thank you. All right, John, let's head over to uh, Matthew in Dayton, Ohio, who is a comedian slash magician and wants some advice on taking his career to the next level. Matthew, you there? Hi, man. Yes, I'm here. Hi. How you doing, buddy? Hi, John. Uh, doing great. Doing great. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, with your uh, successful uh, background in hospitality management and bar and nightclub, uh, I, you know, I perform in comedy clubs, um, corporate events, and colleges, that kind of thing. Um, and I just, uh, I, I've been doing comedy clubs for about 10 years and, um, would like to move into doing more of the corporate events and doing more, uh, I, I'd like to break into the cruise ship market and, uh, just kind of, I've taken steps towards it. I, I do about 25 weeks a year on the road in comedy clubs, um, oh. kind of as a feature act and then, uh, headline a good majority of those as well. And then I do about 10 to 15 corporate events a year and I'd like to, do more of that. And I wanted to see if you had any uh, kind of input from uh, your background. Sure. Who books those events for you now? Well, most of uh, the comedy clubs, uh, the chains, such as Funny Bone and Improv, they have uh, a booker that handles all of their clubs. So they uh, call you directly? They handle all their clubs. Yes. Yeah, so they contact me directly. And then as far as the corporate events go, I don't have an exclusive agent that I work for per se, but I do have agencies. Uh, that I work for on a, a per gig basis. So you've exposed yourself to a number of agencies that do these kind of bookings so that you're sort of on their roster. And uh, uh, they, any of them could call you at any point if they have the right type of engagement for you. Is, is that a fair Absolutely, assessment? Yes. Yep. yes. So I have a lot of friends that, that are, are in a similar world to you. In that. One that comes to mind was on this very podcast just a few weeks ago, Terry Fader. 
Terry wound up, you know, winning America's Got Talent and, and like you, worked in corporate events and, and, you know, small comedy clubs and toured for years until he got on that show and got his big break. You know, I never, yeah. ever thought I'd be on TV, man. I came up with this idea. The fact that they wanted me to do a pilot was, was unbelievable to me. I never thought I'd do another show after it. But I took that big freaking step and it took me a year to get on television. Terry took that huge step. And it took him about three years to get his big hit. I have friends like Scott Record and other friends who work on cruise ships all the time. They're singing impressionists, or comedians, et cetera. Buddy, there's a great bit marketplace out there for you. You know that. And you can work mm-hmm. a good 35 to 40 weeks a year in that space. A couple of thoughts. One, I would get some copies of Meeting Planning Magazine. And I would Google Meeting Planners. And through that, you can find eight or ten of the largest meeting planning organizations in the world. These are the guys that coordinate all the big conventions. Often, they're the ones who call the agency to find a guy like you. Obviously, I would put together a program for the cruise ships as well because, you know, they can keep you busy 30 weeks a year themselves. I'll tell you another one that's interesting for you to take a look at is Indian gaming. Now, there's Indian gaming casinos all across the country that are smaller, and they hire a smaller acts. And you would fit in their envelope very, very well. One last thing, because I know Casey is listening there. Being a magician, do you know how to make a producer disappear? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I could help you. I wish. Uh, okay. Well, if you figure that one out, give me a call back. Okay, buddy? <laughs> Will do. I appreciate you talking to me. You know, I always want every No Excuses podcast to leave us with something. Listening to Mark's interview, Mark Itkin has lessons to learn. It didn't come easy. And with every guest I have that's a common thread, success doesn't always come easy. But man, when it comes, it's sweet. And once you have it and the money and the resources and the travel, it's so freaking worth it to put the time in early to create that career that you have in the middle of your life, not in the latter part of your life. And the same thing with Mike and Jocelyn, Casey. Look at what they overcame. Uh, uh, after being flooded, their house is built, their family's back together again, their bar's doing three times more than it used to. So there's no giving up. There's no excuses. We can learn from their experiences and we can make our lives better too. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 